U.S. Navy History arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by the XO, it's Christoph. Hey, buddy. Hey, how's it going, Captain Dave? Duh. Duh. Dave. Ooh. Dave, are you cheating on me? Are no, Dale. Dale, I, I believe the audience will agree with me that I said Dale. Dave is, that, let's not talk about the past. That's, that's not why we're here. We're actually specifically here to talk about the past. But the U.S. Navy history, not personal. Anyway, good to see you, Dale. Buddy, you are thin ice. <laughs> All right, so we're going to jump back into it. We are in the American Revolution. We are uh, talking about the invasion Quebec area of operations. And specifically, we're going to be talking about the Battle of Valcour Island. Are you ready to get underway? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Sorry. I am. Thank you for checking on me. That is a sign of a great captain. And now the buttering up starts. Okay. Uh, oh, man. It's not going to stop either. So this took place on October 11th, 1776 on Lake Champlain. So during the American retreat, from they carefully... What? either took or destroyed all of the ships on Lake Champlain that the British might be able to take and use against them. So when Arnold and his troops, who were on the rear guard, abandoned Fort St. Juan, they burned or sank all of the boats that they could not use. Oh, hey, arson. No, yes, that's right. That is an expensive enterprise. Ships, I mean, in talking with you throughout all these episodes, the capital it takes to get a ship built is significant. And then just to have them burned, that's, it's starting to hurt a little bit more each time. Mm. Well, they also burned the sawmill and the fort itself. Oh, dang. Drink, arson. <laughs> these burnings did deny the British any hope of being able to immediately get into the lake. So on that point, it worked. Mm -hmm. So now both sides are madly building fleets. The British were building their fleet at St. Juan, and the Americans were at the other end in Skeensboro, which nowadays is called Whitehall. Okay. So General Carleton, in his wisdom, did anticipate problems of transportation on the lake. And so he requested the provisioning of prefabricated ships. Yeah. What does I that mean? Pre-built? Prefabricated? Pre-built. Well, I understand that fabricated means built, but um, I, th- I think about modular homes, for example. There's a lot of prefabricated materials that go into that and then they just kind of ship the huge pieces and you just put them together and then boom you've got a home same case here with ships same case only these are coming from europe okay wow that's cool so by the time carlton's army reached saint juan he had 10 ships arriving these Boats were assembled by the shipwrights on the upper Richelieu River. One of the boats that uh, they assembled was the HMS Inflexible, 
which was a 180-ton warship. Dang. Yeah, they disassembled this in Quebec City, transported it upriver, and then reassembled it. That's impressive. It is. So, all in all, the British fleet had more firepower than the American fleet. The British had 25 armed vessels, while the Americans had 15. The British also had more than 80 guns, which outweighed the Americans' 74 guns. Huh. Uh, two of Carlton's new boats, the Inflexible and the HMS Thunderer, they by themselves outgunned the combined firepower of the American fleet. That's incredible. <laughs> but this is just where they're starting, though, right? I mean... Yeah. Okay. The Inflexible had 18 12-pounders, and the Thunderer had six 24-pound guns, six 12-pound guns, and two howitzers. Uh, In addition to these two boats, the fleet also had a couple of schooners, the Maria with 14 guns, the Carlton with 12 guns, and the Loyal Convert with six guns. And they also had 20 single-massive gunboats with two cannons each. Nice. That's quite a fleet. Now, on the American side, they encountered a lot of different challenges. Uh, Being a shipwright was actually not a common occupation. Uh, Up in New York, the common occupation would more than likely be lumberjack. You know, this area is heavily, heavily forested. Okay, that's not what I would have imagined, but that's that's really interesting. Now, so the Continental Navy had to pay extremely high wages to lure the ship rights they needed from the coast to upstate New York. The carpenters hired to build boats on Lake Champlain were the best paid employees in the Navy. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you want to put your investment in the right place, and that I think that's a good place to put it. Right. The The only exception to that is the uh, Commodore. He made a little bit more. Understandable. So by the end of July, there were more than 200 shipwrights in Skeensboro. Wow. So in addition to these guys, uh, materials and supplies specific to maritime use also needed to be brought to Skeensboro, where they Ooh. were constructed where they were constructing these boats. Uh, Also, they had to take supplies to Fort Ticonderoga because this is where they fitted these boats out for sea. That is a lot of uh, material in an age before railroad or interstate highways. Or This is uh, quite a task. Hence the challenge. Oh, yeah. Now, the ship building was overseen by a guy named... Hermius Schuyler. And the outfitting was managed by a military engineer by the name of Judithan Baldwin. Now, Schuyler, he started to produce boats in April that were large and more suitable for combat than, you know, the small draft boats that were used for transport on the lake during this time. These boats were known as Batuk. Hmm. So Arnold took up a task that uh, Major General Horatio Gates, who was in charge of 
the entire shipbuilding effort. He was tasked with just taking more responsibility because, quote, I am entirely uninformed as to marine affairs. So Arnold was like, oh, hell yeah. And Gates rewarded him with command of the fleet. He said that Arnold had a perfect knowledge in maritime affairs and is, besides, a most gallant and deserving officer. That's um, quite a contrast to how we view him today, generally speaking. Yes. That comes later, though. Right now. Yeah, oh, yes, yes, yes. He's, he's a gallant gent right now. Right. Now, his appointment was fought a bit. There was a guy named Jacob Jacobs Wincoop. He had actually been in command of the fleet, and he refused to accept that Gates had the authority to have him replace. Hmm. So Gates arrested him. As you do, yeah. Yeah. It's well, a good way he, to show you're in charge, I guess. Well, I mean, technically he disobeyed an order. And if you disobey an order, you go to jail. Yeah, that's true. And depending on the severity, you could, ex you could actually be uh, uh, executed. Well, he wasn't executed, so uh, he got a good, the good end of that deal. Yeah. Don't talk back, man. So August comes comes up, and uh, the shipbuilding started to be slowed quite a lot. You want to know? Can you guess why? Winter. No, this is August. All right. Slowed a lot, August. Oppressive heat. No. Probably not weather-related. I'm on the wrong track. Why don't you go ahead and tell me? Cholera, or disease, sickness, yes, leprosy, exactly. paralysis. Maybe not to that extent, but yes, disease. Yeah, everybody started falling sick. Now, the army had been very, very good about keeping smallpox sufferers uh, segregated from everybody else. The disease that slowed the shipwrights for a number of weeks was described as some type of fever. Yes, that's accurate. <laughs> so now both sides are very busy with building ships. And the American fleet now start patrolling the waters of Lake Champlain. There is a point in August when Arnold sails part of his fleet to the northernmost end of the lake, which is within 20 miles of St. Juan. And he, bore, and he formed a battle line. Uh... The British outpost sees this. They're really very well out of range. They found that out because they fired a few shots and it just splashed in front of them in the water. <laughs> they, you know, just started looking at each other. That's the first step. Yeah. So the end of September rolls around and Arnold was like, well, I think the British are about to set sail. Let's go. We're going to Valcor Island. So it was just... You know, a show of force. Look what we got and you don't. <laughs> so while patrolling the lake, Arnold had the command of a fleet from the, his, or his, uh, his flagship was the schooner, the Royal Savage. And it had 
12 guns. Um, you know, but yeah. Can I jump in just for a minute? Absolutely. As we've been talking through the American Revolution, the British uh, and the way they name their ships is incredible. I I love their names, the inflexible. I just I I every time you say one of their ship names, I smile. So, audience, picture at least me smiling when he says that name. So, there we go. Now it's more interactive and you have a better feel for what's happening on this side of the broadcast. Continue, Captain. Nice to know. Thank you. So when the time for battle nears, Arnold transfers his flag to the Congress, which is a row galley. A row galley is a term that was used for a boat that was whose main propulsion was oars instead of sails. Huh. And, you know, this gave them, you know, more maneuverability. So, the other ships in the fleet included the Revenge, the Liberty, a couple of two-masted schooners with eight guns. They also had the Enterprise. You should know that name. Indeed. The most famous the most famous name in naval history. At this point in time, she was a sloop with 12 guns. They also had eight gundalos outfitted as gunboats with three guns each. Go ahead. A gundal yeah, I just, you can see the confusion on my face. A gundalo, I've never heard that word before. Can you please give me some elaboration? Yes, this is a flat bottom sailing barge. Um, they were used in rivers. They, uh, were, so they were taken, outfitted with guns and put into naval service. Nice. Okay. I could see that. So like a Viking ship with guns. No, a barge with guns. Well, okay. Viking ships were, were, uh, ocean going craft. They also had flat bottoms, though, did, did they not? No. I thought they did so they could access uh, rivers and stuff. That's how they were able to successfully pillage further inland. But I could be mistaken. I misunderstood uh, quite a lot about history. So that's partially why I'm here. So thank you, Dale. <laughs> the Gundalows were the New Haven, the Providence, the Boston, the Spitfire... The Philadelphia, the Connecticut, the Jersey, the New York, and... There was also a cutter there called the Lee. They also had two roll galleys, the Trumbull and Washington. So that is the American fleet at this time in the lake. I got a question for you. Yeah. I've heard a couple of things named Washington, including this last ship that you just mentioned. Yeah. Now, I'm familiar with George Washington, the commander-in-chief of the American forces in this conflict, were there other things named Washington, or are these things named after him? These things are named after him. Wow. That's a bad dude right there. He is General George Washington, the most bad dude in the eastern U.S. That amounts so, to the whole U.S. at this point. But, yeah, it does. You know. So Arnold, he receives intelligence on October 1st, and this indicated that the British had a force slightly more powerful than his. So he was like, well, I have an inferior force. 
so I'm going to make them come to me. And he chooses a place. It's a narrow, rocky body of water between the western shore of Lake Champlain and Valkyr Island. This is near modern-day Plattsboro. So he wanted to do this area because the British fleet would have difficulty bringing its uh, firepower to bear. And where the inferior seamanship of his own sailors, who were, you know, brand new to this, it would pretty much be moot because it's like, well, they can't do much anyway. It's smart. Now, some of the captains that Arnold had wanted to fight in open waters because they wanted to have the choice to be able to retreat. Mm. But Arnold was like, here's the thing, dudes. Our primary purpose of this fleet is not survival. We're just a delay action. That, that is pretty gallant, I must say. Yeah. So Carlton's fleet is commanded by Captain Thomas Pringle. And this fleet included 50 unarmed support vessels. So this is a huge amount of boats. They sail onto Lake Champlain on October 9th, and they start going southward, searching for Arnold's fleet. So on the night of October 10th, they anchor about 15 miles to the north of where Arnold was. Now, they still didn't know that he was there, but they're now 15 miles away. Oh. Mm-hmm. The next day, they weigh anchor and they continue south. They have favorable winds, so they're making good time. And after they pass the northern tip of Valcor Island, that is when Arnold sends out Congress and the Royal Savage to say, Hey, guys, we're here. <laughs> so there's a small exchange of gunfire, which really didn't amount to nothing. And the two American vessels return to Arnold's firing line. He installed a crescent-shaped firing line. Now, the Royal Savage, she wasn't able to fight the headwinds, so her, she did not tack very effectively. And with an experienced crew, that's where the experience comes in handy. But uh, she had to run aground on the southern tip of Valcor Island. Uh, a, num a number of the British gunboats just made a beeline towards her. They're like, ha-ha, success! And Captain Howley, who was command of the vessel and his men, you know, abandoned ship very, very quickly. Oh, yeah. The uh, royal convert for, came alongside her, boarded her, and they captured 20 men. But then the Americans were like, oh, no, you didn't. And That's what started, we do, yeah. Yeah, and started firing heavily on them. And they abandoned her quick, smart. Uh, there was a historical loss there. A number, uh, a lot of uh, Arnold's papers were on board mm. the Royal Savage. Because remember, that was his flagship before he transferred his flag. I see. So when the Royal Savage went down, we lost all that historical documentation. That stinks. And of course, the British helped by, with the burning too. They were like, well, if we can't have it, they can't have it either. Yeah, I, I, I tend to see that theme reoccurring quite a bit in this conflict. <laughs> That's too bad. I wonder what those papers would have said or if they would have 
giving us more insight into Arnold himself. When we next time I go to the store, I need bread, milk, eggs. That's right. He puts ketchup on his sandwiches. Absurd. So now the British gunboats and the Carlton maneuver within range of the American line. The Thunderer and the HMS Maria were not able to tack into the wind effectively, and the headwind kept them from getting up there. So they they didn't participate in this battle. Now, the Inflexible apparently had a better crew because they were able to very slowly come up to the uh, the battle line, you know. And that's so that massive a, ship, right? That's the 180-ton guy? Yes. Wow. So at around 1230, the battle begins. Both sides start firing broadsides and cannonades at each other. And this continues throughout the entire afternoon. Uh, revenge is hit very hard. Philadelphia is also heavily damaged, and she eventually goes down at around 1830. Oof. Now, Carlton, now the Carlton was wrecking a lot of havoc with the small American gundalos. And so the Americans were like, target that bastard. And yeah, he, that, the Carlton becomes, you know, a focal point for their attention. Okay. A shot eventually snaps the line holding her in her position, her broadside position, and she was then seriously damaged because it's free-for-all now. Oof. And had to be towed out of range before, you know, they could try to save her. She had... Eight killed in action and eight more wounded. That's a, that's a lot of casualties. Oh, yeah. Now, there was a sailor, a guy named Edward Pello, who served as her midshipman. He distinguished himself by commanding the vessel to safety when her senior officers were injured. Ooh. There was another shot by the Americans, which, you know, this is really a lucky shot. Just like the other one that hit the Carlton in the first place. <laughs> this one hit a magazine on a British gunboat and vaporized it. No kidding. Well, I guess, yeah, they're holding a lot of powder, so that's what's going to happen. Yeah. Woof. That is crazy. So about sunset time. Inflexible is finally here. Huzzah! <laughs> we made it, guys. And her guns effectively silenced, you know, Arnold's fleet. Oof. The British also start landing their Native American allies on Valcor Island and the lakeshore. And this was to deny the Americans the opportunity of retreating to land. So darkness falls, and the Americans, you know, they retreat. And, you know, darkness falls, so the British, they, they stop attacking. Yeah. Mostly, partly because um, a lot of their fleet had run out of ammunition. Wow. Yeah. Uh, there was a lieutenant, a guy named James Haddon, who was in command of one of the British gunboats. He noted, quote, 
little more than a third of the British fleet saw much action that day. So he's uh, boasting that only a third of the British fleet bested the American fleet. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, again, the American Americans' mission was a delay action. Right, not survival or defeat or whatever so the british are like ha ha we won and the americans are like ha ha we won because we did what we were set out to do (laughs) so they retreat and most of the american ships were damaged and or sinking the they reported about 60 casualties in total while the british reported about 40 casualties in total now arnold is definitely aware that he cannot defeat these guys he decides to try reaching the cover of Fort Crown Point, which is about 35 miles south of them. So under the cover of a dark and foggy night, they muffled their oars and used minimal illumination. And they threaded a gap of about one mile wide right between the British ships and the western shore where the Native Americans had campfires burning. That's pretty good. So by morning, they had reached Schuyler Island, which is about eight miles up the lake. And Carlton wakes up that morning, comes up on deck, looks around, and is ticked off. (laughs) I bet. (laughs) He's like, where did the Americans go? All right, everybody, no breakfast for you. Get out there and find them. So his fleet goes around Valcor Island, thinking maybe they just went around the other side of the island, and they didn't find Jack Squat. So he regroups his fleet and starts sending out scouts to find Arnold. Now, the Americans, they did not have the wind with They also had very damaged and leaky boats, so they're, they moved really slow. When they got to Schuyler Island, the Providence and Jersey were sunk and burned. Oh, arson. Drink. Dang. This is quite an episode. And they also repaired, as best they could, other vessels. They abandoned the cutter, the Lee, on the western shore, and this they did not burn, and it was eventually taken by the British. Mm. At around 1400, the fleet was able to set sail again. But they were trying to make headway against, you know, big wind, rain, and sleet. Wow. Yeah. So by the next morning, they were still more than 20 miles from Crown Point. And they could see the British masts behind them on the horizon. So the winds, they change. And the British have the advantage first. They closed once again, and they opened fire on the Congress and Washington, which were at the back of the fleet. Mm -hmm. Arnold first made a decision to try and ground the slower gunboats on Split Rock, which is about 18 miles away from Crown Point. But the Washington was too badly damaged and too slow to get there. So she had to strike her colors. Dang. 100, 110 were taken prisoner that, from that boat. Wow. That's quite a large number. Yes. Arnold then leads his men 
and smaller craft into a small bay on the Vermont shore, which is now named Arnold's Bay. Huh. This is two miles south of Buttonmold Bay. And this bay had waters too shallow, or Arnold's Bay had waters too shallow for the British boats to follow. So that would give them some safety. So Arnold orders all his boats to be run aground, stripped, and set on fire. Oh, yeah. I see he has a theme. Arson. Oh, yep. Ooh. But he did not strike their colors. He burned them with the flag still flying proudly. Whoa. Nice. That, that my friend, is defiance to the max. <laughs> now, Arnold, he was the last to, to reach land. He personally torched his flagship, the Congress. He's like, nobody else can do this but me. It is my duty to do this. The surviving members of the fleet was about 200. They made their way overland to Crown Point. Uh, they narrowly escaped Native American ambushes. <clears throat> where they, When they finally got there, they found Trumbull, New York, Enterprise, and Revenge waiting for them. And then they see that the Liberty has now arrived with supplies. Oh, good. So out of the 15 or so boat fleet, they have five left. Well, at least there were some survivors. That's, that's something. So at the end of all this, Arnold gets it into his head that Crown Point is no longer viable as a defense point. And he destroys and abandons the fort and moves his forces to Ticonderoga. Now, General Carleton, he was like, do we really have to ship all these prisoners back to Quebec? You know what? No. This is going to be way too much of a hassle. Uh, let's take them to, Ticonder uh, to Fort Ticonderoga under a flag of truce and give them back. Wow, that is not what I expected to have happen. When they got there, the men were actually very positive in their praise of Carlton. And this scared the heck out of Arnold. And was like, you know what, guys, you can go home. Really? Yep. Because he wanted to prevent the desertion of the rest of the men around him. Oh, they would influence everybody else with their high esteem of the British. Look, they treated us so good, we got fat. And because we are so well fed, let's go over to the British side. Yeah, I could see that. That was a good move by Arnold. So at this point in time, the British have effective control over the entire lake. And the lobster tails, they occupy Crown Point, the uh, city of Crown Point, the next day. They stay there for two weeks. They have scouted parties to go within three miles of Ticonderoga. But, you know, it's starting to get cold. And, you know, once it gets cold and snow starts to come down, supply lines break down. So this is when Carlton decides to go north to his winter quarters. That's odd that his winter quarters would be up north. That seems counterintuitive, but I, I get it. Well, it's probably in Quebec proper. Right, yeah, it's in a, a more established area. 
Now, there was a Hessen commander, a guy named Baron Reidsel. He noted, quote, If we had begun our expedition four weeks earlier, I am satisfied that everything could have ended this year. Well, it's a good thing they were delayed. Uh, let's see. The captains of the Maria, the Inflexible, and the Loyal Convert wrote letters to the to Parliament, criticizing Captain Pringle, the, saying that they he allowed for Arnold to be able to escape by failing to properly blockade the channel, and that he was not aggressive enough in directing the battle. But, you know, apparently this did not hurt his career at all, which is weird, but it happens. Yes, he well, did he... become an admiral later. I see. He did sink two-thirds of the boats that came at him, and he captured over a hundred guys. I mean, he did pretty well. And I right. think the only reason he stopped is because, like you said, they ran out of ammunition. Well, their main complaint is they could have destroyed the entire fleet, but didn't. They left room for Arnold to be able to escape. And if mm. you have troops out there, they can come back. That's true. Yeah, he's right. Uh, po, 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 po. All right, so that is the Battle of Valcor Island. How do you feel about that? How, how are you feeling after that? I feel, let's see. You feel pretty Knowing that this is early on in the war, uh, this normally would be it disappointing just because the Americans lost a lot of ships and material men. Um, but I mean, that, like you said, they accomplished their mission. They delayed the fleet like they were supposed to. And so I think it's just above neutral in the positive category, but still not feeling great. You know what I mean? <laughs> okay. I, I will accept that. So that's going to bring us to the New York, New Jersey campaign. Ooh. Yes. So while British troops are under siege in Boston and Bunker Hill happens, General George Washington is named the Second Continental Congress by the Second Continental Congress Commander in Chief of the Continental Army. He echoed statements that others were making that New York was a, quote, post of infinite importance. And so he begins the task of organizing military companies in the New York area, where he stopped on his way to take command of the Boston siege. So in January of 1776, George Washington orders Charles Lee to recruit troops and take command of New York's defenses. Uh, Lee, for his credit, does make some progress on the city's defenses when he receives word in March that the British Army had left Boston after Washington showed up. So he got scared. He was like, um, I think General Howie is coming right over here. <laughs> And so Washington, he has that same fear, and he gets his regiments that were there in Boston over there down over down the uh, down there very quickly. And he goes too. He's like, ah, I'm going with those guys because nice. I like New York City. I guess he likes it. I don't know. Well, it was a post of infinite importance. So yeah, 
It's pretty strong words. If I was a New Yorker, I would uh, I would tell everybody that. It's like, hey, did you know that the father of our country thinks that our place is, you know, pretty important? Now, Howie, he, of course, did not go against New York. He's like, I, I, no, we're going to Halifax, which is in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia, yeah. Yeah. And that's where he regroups. And that's where he gets all his transports full of lobster tails from bases around Europe. And then he's like, now we can come to New York. So he gathers his troops at Halifax. And in June, he sets sail for New York. Uh, he didn't actually wait for all his reinforcements. He set sail with 9,000. Whoa. This uh, had primarily the Hessen-Kessel German troops okay. and British troops from the expedition to the Carolinas that failed. And the, the other troops were to meet him when they got to New York. Okay. That's a lot of guys. Now, his brother, Admiral Lord Howey, he, when he arrives at Halifax, he was like, well, crap, we just missed him. Uh, let's get out of here, guys. We're not even staying. We're going to New York. <laughs> so when General Howey arrives in the outer harbor of New York, he starts sending his boats up and up the narrows between Staten Island and Long Island because it is undefended. Hmm. And he starts landing his troops on Staten Island with no response from the Americans. It was an uncontested landing. Hmm. Now, Washington, he learns from prisoners that uh, he did successfully take that Howie had landed about 10,000 men. And was waiting for 15,000 more. Oh, my gosh. Now, Washington had an army of about 19,000. And so he's like uh, 29,000 or 25,000 versus 19,000. Well, we're smaller. We don't have any real intelligence on their, their plans or whether the numbers we got were even true yet. And I have no idea where this guy's going to strike. So now I have to split my army between fortified positions on Long Island, Manhattan, and other, you know, locations on the mainland. And I'm going to have to establish a flying camp in New Jersey. Oh, man. The flying camp, for those who don't know, is what we would nowadays call our QRF or Quick Reaction Force. These were, you know, forces in reserve that would be able to quickly move to where they would be needed in any place on the area of operations. So the Howie brothers, they did ha have a little bit of authority that was given to them by Parliament with powers to pursue a peaceful resolution to the war. Now, King George III, the bloodthirsty tyrant of the lobster tails, he, you know, wasn't optimistic about peace. But he said, quote, 
yet I think it right to be attempted, whilst every act of vigor is unremittingly carried on. So, to translate English to English, <laughs> it's, it's okay to pursue peace, but we're still going to press forward with our attacks and everything as though we're still engaged in battle, like it's hedging a little bit? Oh, yeah. Okay. We're, we're going to keep killing you while we talk about peace. Right. Yeah, we're not going to let up. But we can, we're open to it. So, on July 14th, with these authority powers that were granted to them in mind, Admiral Howey sends a messenger with a letter addressed to George Washington Esquire across mm. the harbor. That's how it was labeled. George Washington Esquire across the harbor. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. That's where he was. I guess that's as um, fine of an address that you could put on there. Now, the letter first came to Washington's uh, assistant, the guy named Joseph Reed, and he politely informed the messenger that no person with that title was there in, was in their army. Yeah, he was not an esquire. <laughs> now, the aide, he wrote later that the punctilio of an address should not have prevented the leather the letter's delivery <laughs> and howie was said to be visibly annoyed by the rejection i could see that, that that's kind of cool though <laughs> so howie sends a second request addressed to general washington esquire etc and this was also rejected he, but the messenger was told that the that Washington would receive one of Howie's adjuncts. Uh, that was not really a very fruitful meeting. Washington pointed out that he had the same limited amount of powers that Howie's brothers had been given. And, you know, they're really not much use. I see. And also, they didn't do anything wrong because well they required... Amnesty. What do you mean? That's what he said. Oh, okay. What does he mean? You have to go ask him. Oh, okay. Can do. <laughs> oh, I get it. Wink. Listeners, uh, this is the interactive part of the podcast, and you get to research a little bit yourself. Great job, Dale. So, in August, the British transported it about 22,000 men now to Long Island. This is when the Battle of Long Island happens. And the British, they outflank the American positions, driving the Americans back to Brooklyn Heights and their fortifications there. That is when General Howey starts to lay siege to the fortifications. But General George Washington, he has skills. And he was able to successfully initiate a nighttime retreat through his rear guard huh. across the East River to Manhattan Island. Howie then was like, okay, guys, we need to stop here and we need to think because I have no idea what to do next. And how do these Americans keep slipping by all of us? <laughs> We're very sneaky as a people. Yes. Oh. So during the battle, the British captured one of Washington's generals, a guy named John Sullivan. And Howie convinces him to deliver a message to Congress in Philadelphia. And so he released him on parole. 
Washington also gave his permission to the uh, message being delivered. So on September 2nd, Sullivan told the Congress that the Howies, because, you know, brothers, mm-hmm. wanted to negotiate. They, they, had, they held much broader powers to, do, to negotiate than they actually had. Hmm. So this created a diplomatic problem for the <laughs> Continental Congress. They did not want to be seen as aggressive, which is how some other representatives felt a, that would hap, it would be seen as with a direct rejection. Right. So they decided to send a committee to meet with Howie and his brother Howie. And, you know, of course, this really didn't do anything. But, I mean, they tried. Yeah, you got to try. Yeah, on September 11th, Howie and Howie meets with John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Edward Rutledge. Wow. And this is what would be known as the Staten Island Peace Conference. And if you guys want to know the outcome, tune in next week. (sighs) No, we were so close to understanding the Staten Island Peace Conference. Well, maybe the residents of Staten Island may already know that. Or, uh, I'm sure we have a lot of history buffs listening. They may already know, but I don't know. Mm. So I'll I'll be here next week. Ready. Yes. Okay, maybe not ready. Uh, <laughs> w- willing. Willing and able. Right, there we are. All right. So at the end of every episode, we honor one of our fallen angels. With our partnership with HeroCarts.us. So today we are going to honor Sergeant First Class Matthew Leonard. He is from Birmingham, Alabama. He served in the U.S. Army, Company B, 1st Battalion, 16th Infantry Regiment, 1st Infantry Division. He received the Medal of Honor and a Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was February 28, 1967. Killed in action near Soi Da. Ning Province, Republic of Vietnam. He was aged 37. Matthew Leonard served in the Korean War and was nearing his retirement from the U.S. Army when he volunteered to go to Vietnam. His selfless and heroic actions would earn him the nation's highest military honor, the Congressional Medal of Honor. Leonard was born in the small town of Utah, Alabama on November 26, 1929. He was the he was an eighth grader at the segregated Avondale School when he met his childhood sweetheart and future wife, Lois, who was in the sixth grade. She recalls him always walking the halls in his Boy Scout uniform. While at Olmen High School in Birmingham, Alabama, he worked at a drugstore for $15 a week to help his mother pay the bills. His father was, according to Lewis, in and out. At the age of 17, Leonard enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1947 while he was a high school junior. Soon after, he and Lois married and would later welcome five children, sons Carl and LaVon, daughters Brenda, Wanda, and Paula. His Army career would take Leonard to the battlefields of Korea in 1950, where he served for a year. In 1956-1957, his the family spent time stationed in Germany. His wife told the Birmingham Real-Time News that her husband had achieved the rank of Master Sergeant, but was demoted after he scuffled with a soldier who called him the N-word. 
He, quote, he never got that strike back, she said. The family returned to the U.S. where Leonard was assigned as a drill sergeant at Fort Leonard Wood in the Missouri Ozarks. As United States involvement in the Vietnam War intensified, Sergeant First Class Leonard watched his young recruits, only slightly older than his two sons, go to war and die. Lois recalls Matthew telling her, quote, they need experienced soldiers over there. So despite being close to his retirement, Sergeant First Class Leonard volunteered to go to Vietnam. He felt that his experience could make a difference and told friends and family that he wouldn't likely be coming home. His wife said he didn't have to go. I told him, you're crazy. You cannot do it. Sergeant First Class Leonard was assigned to a as a platoon sergeant for Company B, 1st Battalion, 16th Infantry Regiment, 1st Infantry Division. And on February 28, 1967, his platoon was attacked by a much larger enemy force near Soi Da in South Vietnam. Leonard's action to save his platoon would earn him the Medal of Honor. His recitation reads, For conspicuous gallantry and interpudity, in action at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty, his platoon was suddenly attacked by a large enemy force employing small arms, automatic weapons, and hand grenades. Although the platoon leader and several other key leaders were among the first wounded, Sergeant Leonard quickly rallied his men to throw back the initial enemy assaults. During the short pause that followed, he organized a defensive perimeter, redistributed ammunition, and inspired his comrades throughout his, through his forceful leadership and words of encouragement. Noticing a wounded companion outside the perimeter, he dragged the man to safety, but was struck by a sniper's bullet, which shattered his left hand. Refusing medical attention and continuously exposing himself to the increasing fire as the enemy again assaulted the perimeter, Sergeant Leonard moved from position to position to direct the fire of his men against the well-camouflaged foe. Under the cover of the main attack, the enemy moved a machine gun into a location where it could sweep the entire perimeter. This threat was magnified when the platoon machine gun in the area malfunctioned. Sergeant Leonard quickly crawled to the gun position and was helping to clear the malfunction when the gunner and his and other men in the vicinity were wounded by fire from the enemy machine gun. Sergeant Leonard rose to his feet, charged the enemy gun, and destroyed the hostile crew despite being hit several times by enemy fire. He moved to a tree, propped himself against it, and continued to engage the enemy until he succumbed to his many wounds. His fighting spirit, heroic leadership, and valiant acts inspired the remaining members of his platoon to hold back the enemy until assistance arrived. Sergeant Leonard's profound courage and devotion to his men are in keeping with the highest traditions of the military service, and his gallant actions reflect great credit upon himself and the U.S. Army. Sergeant First Class Matthew Leonard, aged 37, was six months shy of retiring from the U.S. Army, having served nearly 20 years. He and Lois had discussed plans to do a lot of fishing and maybe start a small business. He instead gave his life to serve his country and to protect the young soldiers he had trained. He is laid to rest with his fellow soldiers at Fort Mitchell National Cemetery in his home state of Alabama. Sergeant First Class Leonard is honored at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. His name inscribed to panel 15E, line 119. So, Sergeant First Class Matthew Leonard, thank you. Thank you. All right, XO, please take us out. All righty. Pardon me. Sorry. Um, uh, thank you very much for listening, y'all. Um, it's really great to revisit kind of what helped shape our nation and other events in the world. And it's really um, great to, to do this with you. 
Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with us, feel free to email us. Our email address is usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, alternatively, if you'd like to add us at x slash Twitter, please feel free to do that as well. Uh, you can find us with the handle at usnhistorypod. Is that right? Hold on. U.S. Navy History Pod. Yes. And then uh, we have a Discord that you can get on and talk more interactively with us and other listeners. And you'll find that link in the show notes, as well as what I've just mentioned. Um, also, we're on YouTube. So if you want to listen to us there, you can do that. There's so many options. We're, we're a smorgasbord of options that we're giving to you so you can learn history, pass that test. We know you're listening, students. And then, uh, let's see, YouTube. Da, 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 <laughs> I think that's everything. So thank you, Dale. All right. So with that, guys, we're going to go ahead and wish you fair winds and following seas. Bye, everybody. Take care. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing. <laughs>